Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, on January 12th, 2023, I'm Gianna Volpe on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. Following up on Governor Hochul's State of the State speech on Tuesday, Newsday staff reporting on Newsday.com that Long Island elected officials expressed concerns yesterday over Governor Hochul's plan to add 800,000 housing units statewide in the next decade, in part by setting local targets and fast-tracking projects in areas that don't meet them in the next three years. The approach allows local governments to approve the types of housing they believe meet local needs, but carries the prospect the state will step in if too few projects are approved. Several town supervisors told Newsday they were still reviewing the proposal, but worried about how it could interfere with local control over zoning rules. It will be several weeks before the governor releases more details in her proposed budget, which is, of course, subject to negotiation with the state ledge. The goal is to address a shortage of housing, particularly in the suburbs around New York City, where Hochul said job creation has outpaced building and prevented people from finding homes. Quote, Through zoning, local communities are able to hold enormous power to block growth, Hochul said Tuesday in her speech, adding that between full-on bans of multifamily homes and onerous zoning and approvals processes, they make it difficult, almost impossible, to build homes. Huntington Supervisor Ed Smith said he expects the town, quote, will exceed the governor's goals, but it will be done without the governor's heavy-handed involvement, end quote. Huntington was highlighted by the governor's office this week as lagging behind other areas in housing production. Smith questioned Hochul's suggestion that Huntington had added less than 1,000 housing units in the past decade compared to 91,000 units added in Brooklyn. He said the town is now exploring converting vacant office parks in Melville to include residential units. Here in Suffolk County, um, Bart Jones reporting that on Newsday.com that ATV drivers traveling recklessly and illegally down streets and highways are the target of a new crackdown, including heavy fines. Legislation passed by the Suffolk County Legislature and signed into law Wednesday by County Executive Ballone includes fines up to $7,500 and the seizure of reckless drivers' all-terrain vehicles. Lawmakers acted in response to numerous complaints from residents about ATVs, which are illegal on highways and streets. Quote, today we're sending a message that anyone who illegally operates an ATV putting fellow citizens in danger will be held accountable, Ballone said at a news conference in front of police headquarters in Yapank. In 2022, authorities seized 124 ATVs in Suffolk County and logged 1,500 complaints from residents about the vehicles, according to Police Commissioner Harrison. The drivers, often traveling in packs, harass and endanger other motorists, officials said, citing as one example a pack of about 25 ATV drivers shutting down part of Sunrise Highway near Hospital Road in Patchogue. Many ATV drivers are, quote, weaving in and out, cutting in front, going uh, in wrong directions, don't have lights on at night, 
harassing cars sometimes also. That quote from legislator Steve Flotteron, the Republican from Brightwaters. First-time offenders will now face a maximum fine of $1,000, rising to 3000 for the second time and 7500 for the third. Police can also seize the ATVs of offending drivers and make them pay a $3,000 fine to retrieve the vehicles after a second seizure. And finally, here on the East End, uh, Sag Harbor Express reporting on 27East.com that this morning the Friends of Bay Street announced it has listed 22 Long Island Avenue in Sag Harbor, the former site of 7-Eleven, for sale. The property was initially purchased in 2020 with the nonprofit board, stating the intent was to provide Bay Street Theater with a permanent home in Sag Harbor. Quote, we have thoroughly examined the site and have determined this property is no longer viable to build a theater as originally envisioned. That is from Adam Potter, chairman of Friends of Bay Street, who said in a press release, quote, therefore, we have decided to list and sell the property and have retained the Compass Hemptons commercial real estate team to spearhead the process. In the same release, Tracy Mitchell, executive director of Bay Street Theater and Sag Harbor Center of the Arts, said the theater had renewed lease for its space in the Long Wharf property owned by Pat Malloy. There were no details on the length of Bay Street Theater's lease renewal in the press release. Um, Reading the weather in East Hampton this morning in honor of our first guest, author Jeff Sussman, joining us again here on The Heart to talk about his brand new book, Sin City Gangsters. Looking like a chance of showers before 5 p.m., then rain after 5, high near 51 degrees. Southeast wind, 8 to 13 miles per hour. Tonight, rain continuing. Thunderstorms also possible after 8. Temperature rising to around 52 degrees by 3 a.m. Breezy otherwise with a southeast wind, 11 to 16 miles per hour. Increasing after midnight, winds could gust as high as 44 miles per hour. Right now, it's 42 degrees and very lightly raining. I'm Gianna Volpe. And of course, we've got some yard birds in honor of the uh, death of the iconic Jeff Beck. I'll play Heart Full of Soul after the Cleftones, Huey Lewis and the News and the Monkees. Uh, I'll play Heart Full of Soul, I'm sorry, the yard birds, after I play Heart and Soul by the Cleftones, Huey Lewis and the News and the Monkees. Here on the Heart of the East End, Mark Knopfler on deck after that. Uh, Starting with the Cleftones, I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Stay tuned for Jeff Sussman at the bottom of the hour. We'll be back. Stole a kiss, stole a kiss, there in the night. 
but what embrace can do come on and look at me you got me loving you
Jeff Beck, a man who certainly put his heart and soul where all could see him, has died at the age of 78 on Tuesday of this week. A representative confirmed, reading from the Guardian website, uh, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Beck, whose fingers and thumbs were famously insured for 7 million lira, was known as a keen innovator. He pioneered jazz rock and experimented with fuzz and distortion effects and paved the way for heavier subgenres such as psych rock and heavy metal over the course of his career. He was an eight-time Grammy winner, recipient of the Ivor Novella for outstanding contribution to British music, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame both as a solo artist and as a member of the Yardbirds. Um, musicians and longtime friends began paying tribute Midnights after the news broke on Twitter, Jimmy Page wrote, quote, The six-stringed warrior is no longer here for us to admire the spell he could weave around our mortal emotions. Jeff could channel music from the ethereal, his technique unique, his imaginations apparently limitless. Jeff, I will miss you along with your millions of fans. Uh, you can check out the Guardian website to see the beautiful note Mick Jagger and, of course, Rod Stewart wrote him. I'm going to play the Yardbirds' Heart Full of Soul, Mark Knopfler, Judy Kuhn, and Nora Jones on deck after that. Jeff, uh, actually, speaking of Jeffs, we might have to wait for a second before we play. Oh, no. We'll have Jeff Sussman after Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds right here on WLIWFM. Tell me where And if she says 
All right, full disclosure as we lead you into the Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. I almost started the show with the Jeff Beck group because we've ended as lovers and done an, like, an end edition of The Heart, but I was too sad to do ending, so I went with the Yardbirds, Heart Full of Soul. But it's ironic because our first guest, Jeff Sussman, uh, the author of Sin City Gangsters, uh, among many other books. Uh, Jeff, you have a connection with Mr. Beck. When I first graduated from college in, in 1969, I got a job doing uh, public relations with Bill Graham's Fillmore East. And one of the groups that I worked on behalf of was the Jeff Beck Group, whose lead singer at that time was Rod Stewart. Right. And they had a great uh, piano player named uh, Nicky Hopkins, who, who also played on albums for the Rolling Stones and and the Beatles, uh, immense loss. Uh, so so many, uh, especially this pat these past two years, that it's almost hard to, uh, well, it's impossible to remember all of them when you consider everyone's families and uh, family members and friends. Um, but uh, certainly of of the iconic set um, as well. Speaking of of icons or, or um, well-known people throughout time, uh, you are no stranger to those in the books you write, um, particularly about the mafiosos over the years. <laughs> and do you, Jeff, do you have Sin City Gangsters in front of you? Um, I, I, I can pull it up, yeah. Because I, I wanted to ask if you could start by reading the acknowledgments page, because I, I wanted to start there. Okay, hold on one second. How are you? Well, actually, How are I, you? I have it on my computer. Let, oh. let me just get the book. Oh. One second, one second. Do you want me to read it for you? Because I can pull it up as well. I'll get you started. That way... Um, Thank you. We won't. We won't be. We won't. We can do together. All right. So the acknowledgments. Um, there are a number of people. Th oh, go ahead. There are a number of people who Got provided it. valuable information for my dive into the role of the mob in Las Vegas. They are Gary Jenkins, an intelligence unit detective, who worked closely with the FBI in uncovering the Chicago outfit's skimming of several casinos in Vegas. Meyer Lansky II. Susan Dalitz, Jay Sarno, and September Sarno, all of whom were forthright in their interviews with me. Tony Napoli, who told me about his time at the Sands Hotel and Casino and the fight between Frank Sinatra and Carl Cohn. Former organized crime detective Anthony Solano made available information from his library of crime information. Stephen Spataro, chief reference library, librarian at the East Hampton Library, for digging up old newspaper and magazine articles, my editor, Becker Buer, for her steadfast support, and, of course, my wife, Barbara, who read each word of the manuscript and offered valuable suggestions. We love you, Barbara. Uh, and we love how you interview so many people for your books. Um, Meyer Lansky II sticks out in my mind, uh, considering how uh, I think at one point you really call him sort of the, the godfather of the American uh, crime organizations. Uh, this he was probably the most powerful uh, mobster in the United States for a good part of the 20th century, more powerful than anybody else. And I think in, in ways, 
smart for the reason that he uh, he was very low profile, and I and I imagine that had a lot to do with why he was able to live out his days in peace. Well, he he, he was a very uh, uh, smart man, and uh, when it had when he had to deal with things that involved violence, he very carefully delegated that to other people. He didn't get his hands dirty with that kind of thing, but but he was he he had a brilliant mind. Yet you know, I was looking. I, I saw his uh, he le- he left school when he was a very young uh, boy, but up until let's say the eighth or ninth grade, I saw his report cards, and he got A in every single subject. Not surprised at all. Which was unusual for people in organized crime. I, I mean, many of them were not the brightest lights in the world. But but he was especially uh, smart, and everyone trusted him, and he was able to keep a number of things in his head simultaneously. Right. Many many different operations he controlled, and he kept them going all the time. He was he was quite brilliant. His brain, the way that it worked, and the way he was able to, like you mentioned, uh, keep everything straight and have have all of the operations, all the people, uh, particularly who was in charge of what shell companies, etc. And I think when I mentioned uh, his brains, you mentioned how he delegated uh, unsavory jobs to other people that you could, you would be more likely to get caught. But also, um, he never put his name down uh, when it came to ownership of certain, uh, you know, casinos. For well, yet, yet, you know, none, none of the high-level mobsters ever did that because it was important for them to be able hide their money from the government so they wouldn't have to pay taxes. And also, when they wanted to leave their money to heirs, they did not establish trusts and have wills. They used front companies to pass the money on to other people, and, and so there would be no record that the government could ever see. How, does, how do you ensure that a company will continue to faithfully uh, support uh, heirs and, and whatnot? Do you make the 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 heirs uh, give them stake in the company, or how does that work? Well, that's 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 part of what you do. You give them stake in the company. But as 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 one of, of leading organized crime uh, detectives told me, a man named um, Ralph Salerno, who's now deceased, he he said the the, the ultimate uh, sanction is that if you don't cooperate, someone's going to come and kill you. Right. And and I remember uh, there was a moment where Jake Lansky, I believe. Uh, does exactly that. He was kind of an enforcer for his brother, and you know, uh, he was an enforcer and a collector. You know, you know, Meyer Lansky, even though he controlled or had controlling interests in more than ten casinos in Las Vegas, <clears throat> he didn't like Las Vegas. He never went there, and he would often send his brother uh, Lansky to do his bidding there, and. Uh, he completely trusted Jake to carry out his orders. So I guess if we're going to talk about people who were very uh, integral to Vegas and didn't necessarily uh, like it, I guess we got to touch on Howard Hughes, who I didn't know much about until I read your book and I ended up uh, talking to my, you know talking to my dad about him, and he was you know he he knew who he was of course as as pretty much I'm sure just about everyone does but he was talking about how that he was a genius that he suffered from OCD and and as you mentioned germophobia and that his his later years were not pretty and that's uh, you detail that 
a little bit, and I ended up doing like a little more research um, about his germophobia and how they would strap him to stretchers to move him from room to room. Uh, my dad told me about how at the end he watched he was in he was in isolation and he watched the movie Ice Station Zebra over and over again. Do you know about this film? No, I, I don't know too much about that. The, what I do know is is really about Howard Hughes's time in uh, Las Vegas. And uh, my first um, bit of learning about that, I was at a, uh, a New Year's Eve party at a resort in Southern California called La Costa in the 1970s. And I, I had been invited to this party by someone I met at the, at the resort. And it was in someone's home. And I was uh, standing in the living room talking to another man. We each had a drink. And he said, oh, you know, my back is killing me. I have to sit down. And he looked like someone's uh, very benign grandfather, something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And we sat down. You mean like with a blanket uh, over his lap? Excuse me? You mean like with a blanket over his lap? That's what I'm imagining. (laughs) It could could have been. I don't don't think he did, but (laughs) it it, it could easily have been that way. Go ahead. And and anyway, I, I asked him what he did for a living. And he said, oh, I used to uh, own uh, casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, his name was Morris Kleinman, and he was a partner of a man named Mo Dalitz, who was probably oh, the most wow. powerful gangster of all time in, in Las That's Vegas. That's Mr. Vegas? And he, he told me that um, uh, Howard Hughes had taken the top two floors of the Desert Inn, which he and, and Mo Dalitz owned. And because uh, Howard Hughes didn't drink and didn't gamble, and his entire entourage uh, neither drank nor gambled. They were losing a lot of money on having him there, and they wanted him out so that they could give the top two floors to high rollers who would come during the Christmas holidays. And Howard Hughes did not want to move. So they went to him and they said, look, Howard, or they said to one of his representatives, "Look, look, Howard, you have to either buy the hotel or... Or, or move out. And Hughes sent a message back to them saying, how much do you want for it? And they decided that they would come up with a price that was four times the actual value of, of the desert and thinking that Hughes would not ag- agree to it. And when he was given that estimate, he uh, sent a message back to them saying, I'll buy it. And, <laughs> and, and, and he paid the price and, 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 and took over the desert Inn, and then proceeded to buy about 12 other casinos right. in Las Vegas. Which which was integral to the development and sort of uh, the way that uh, things happened, how how corporations came in, and uh, and and it sort of really invigorated uh, certain sects of tourism because uh, the the mob didn't have as tight a hold on it anymore. You know, That's we, true. we were talking about Meyer, Meyer Lansky. I wanted to read a, a paragraph about his mother. I, it struck me. I was this morning. Uh, about Vi- uh, Meyer Lansky's mother, Viola eventually found more profitable work in an automotive factory where she polished radiator caps. The repetitive work was exceedingly boring, but at least it meant a regular paycheck that was more than she had earned as a cook, maid, and laundress. Nevertheless, she was an understandably bitter woman whose kindness had been worn away by the acid of economic deprivation. What beautiful writing and what um, 
Thank you. Hard, hard circumstances, because these are these are all real people um, that you're writing about, and and real history, and it's. Well, it's interesting because all all the, all the mobsters uh, came from very poor families. Right. Most of them with the children of uh, poor immigrants. Right. Yes, it's so true, and and it's and it puts into perspective uh, some of some of. Uh, how their stories play out, and and the, and it's just it's it's like watching a movie when you're reading it. Like when you you read about Jay Sarno and how he would actually dress like Caesar at Caesar's palace. That really got me. He was quite a character, Jay Sarno, but 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 also a very brilliant businessman. As are a lot of the a lot of the folks in here, I really appreciated your decision to put the biblia bibliographical notes at the end of each chapter instead of uh, the mm-hmm. end of the book. Is that common? I've never seen it before. I, I don't know. Um, that's the, um, the the way that the publisher likes it, and 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 I found it an appropriate way of doing it that way, so because it makes it easier for the reader. Uh, to, yes. to see what my sources were, rather right. than having to go to the back of the book every, after reading each chapter, and especially in in the world we are living in right now, where there is so much um, information, if you can call it that, words maybe uh, things written that are not cited and then shared as as fact. It's nice to see your sources. Right up front and center, I, I especially enjoyed learning the little factoid that the person who built the fabulous "Welcome to the Fabulous Las Vegas" sign uh, hmm. was a woman, Betty Willis. That it cost right. four thousand dollars. So much great stuff in here for you. How was it? How was it writing um, in comparison to you know Big, Big Apple Gangsters and your and your other books? Well, for me, writing this was um, almost like the second in a trilogy of books about uh, gangsters in different cities. As you mentioned, the first one was Big Apple Gangsters, The Rise and Decline of the Mob in New York. And this one is Sin City Gangsters, The Rise and Decline of the Mob in Las Vegas. And I'm currently working on one about Hollywood gangsters and how they controlled the movie industry. I, I, I find it all fascinating, and I feel very fortunate that my publisher uh, let, lets me pretty much do what I want to do mm-hmm. and, 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 and choose my subject matter. And they uh, provide uh, terrific support for me. I'm, I'm very pleased with it. Well, I want to, and I want to make a note here because I, I said something about them being uh, good businessmen and whatnot. I want to uh, make clear that I'm not advocating or glorifying <laughs> uh, criminal, criminal business uh, acumen, or whatever. I I don't. I do not. Absolutely do not advocate breaking the law in any way in making one's way. Um, but back to what you were just saying, Jeff. Hollywood. That that seems uh, sort of a perfect way to introduce, uh, reintroduce Benjamin Siegel. I mean, will will Bugsy be in that one? I imagine so, since he was in. Yes. I, I mean, you know, his, his fingerprints show up every place, it, it, it seems. You know, he started out in New York City with Meyer Lansky. They had an, an extremely vicious gang uh, during Prohibition right. called the Bug and Meyer Gang. Right. 
and then he um, w- was sent to uh, Los Angeles to, to run a racing wire or to take over a racing wire for, for the mob, and in the process became uh, very involved in building a casino in Las Vegas, one of the first resort casinos uh, called the Flamingo. And at the same time, he was uh, hobnobbing with um, some of the biggest celebrities in Hollywood, and he was uh, good friends with a lot of them, and he invested in racetracks there. But one of the things that a lot of his Hollywood friends didn't know is is that he was extorting uh, a number of the movie studios and getting large payments from them in order to uh, prevent labor unrest. Uh, Oh, right, right, right. He, I, I remember that he was very uh, big into disrupting the labor unions. Uh, speaking of the flamingo, sort of ties into what we were just talking about, and uh, that not all uh, gangsters had were particularly uh, good with money. We'll say, I mean, um, Bugsy when he was or Mr. Siegel when he was building the flamingo, um, his uh, the the builder was. Uh, charging him way over what he needed to to build the hotel, so that wasn't initially a uh, profitable enterprise. Well, what, what what happened initially is that a man named Billy Wilkerson, who owned the Hollywood Reporter and a number of restaurants in, in Beverly Hills, w- w- had started building the Flamingo, and he ran out of money, and he went to the mob to get more funds to build it, and the mob provided him the funds and put uh, Bugsy in charge of, of then uh, continuing the building of the Flamingo. And Bugsy decided that he wanted this hotel for himself, and he kind of pushed Billy Wilkerson out of the picture, threatened to kill him. And uh, Billy Wilkerson went to France for a year to hide out from from uh, Bugsy Siegel. But the, the mob provided uh, a little over a million dollars to Bugsy Siegel, but he kept changing everything. He would have things torn down and have them rebuilt. Uh, the builders were overcharging him, and it wound up costing about five or six million dollars to complete what originally had a cost of about 1.5 million. However, over the years, that money proved insignificant because the flamingo made hundreds of millions of dollars for its investors, and. Um, Ultimately, they should have been grateful to Bugsy Siegel, right. but instead they wound up killing him. Yeah, that tends to be the story uh, when we talk <laughs> about this particular sect of folks. There was a there was a great line in there where I, I forget a guy was worried that he would get killed, and uh, the gangster said to him, "Oh, we only kill each other." Yeah, that that that, that was a. Uh, a, a Bugsy Siegel and, and oh, it was. The, the, bil- the builder of, <laughs> of the Flamingo was worried that, that because of the cost overruns, they would have uh, him killed. And Bugsy said to him, don't worry, we only kill each other. There was a note I put in here saying, uh, talking about when he visits the Countess, but I can't remember why that was in there. I don't know if, if, uh, if you remember. I can probably pull it up. But... Um, I, I just have a note saying Be- Benjamin visiting the countess, and I don't know why. Well, a, a, a Benjamin had an affair with a woman who was a countess. She, she, she was actually an American woman who uh, came from a very wealthy uh, New England family, and uh, she married a uh, poverty-stricken 
um, Italian count uh, who was looking for an American heiress. And um, she had just come off of having an affair with uh, the actor Gary Cooper. And through Gary Cooper, uh, uh, Bugsy met uh, the, the countess. And, 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 and they had a, a very intense relationship. And during that time, uh, she invited uh, Bugsy to visit uh, her husband's estate in Italy. And at the same time that they would be there, Hermann Goering of the Nazi there it is. would also be staying there. And, 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 and Siegel uh, wanted to kill him. And Jeff Goebbels. Uh, and Joseph Goebbels. And jo- Joseph Goebbels, right. A- and um, she said, if you do that, my husband and I are going to wind up being killed. Oh, um, yeah. So they, they, they quickly left and, 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 and they went to France. Uh, Bugsy regretted uh, for the rest of his uh, brief life that he had not killed um, Hermann Goering and, and Joseph Goebbels when he had had a chance to do it. It's, it I think that well, that was definitely the moment because uh, I start thinking about uh, these things, or you know, when you think about life and et cetera, et cetera, and about uh, the butterfly effect and about how uh, history and, and the way things are and the way, you know, one's life is and, and everyone else is around, around us, uh, how things could vastly change uh, depending on, in this case, not very small actions. Um, but right. you know, if, if they were not here, as you mentioned in the book, uh, how world war two played out would certainly be, uh, in question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> a, uh, a, 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 there, there was a, an, an ambassador to, to, to Berlin in the 1930s, an American ambassador who often speculated that, that if the Americans had assassinated Hitler, um, prior to the beginning of World War II, World War II may have been avoided. And with that, I think we will uh, end our chat. Jeff, you know, it is always so fascinating to talk with you and and fun, albeit uh, very heavy topics and, and, and controversial to uh, some, I'm sure. Uh, I, for one very much enjoyed Sin City Gangsters. I always do when you have a, a new book come out. Uh, can't wait for the Hollywood uh, edition, hoping we can do our chat in person from the studio next time. We've got 10 minutes to the NPR news break at the top of the hour, so I'm going to give folks some music. We've got Judy Kuhn's Heart Full of Love from Les Miserables after no- Mark Knopfler's Heart Full of Holes from the Kill to Get Crimson record of 2007. Nora Jones after that. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Jeff Sussman. Uh, you can find Sin City Gangsters um, at your local bookstore. Ask them if you, they do not have the copy on their shelves. I'm sure they can order it for you. Otherwise, I'm sure you can find it online. Uh, that was a Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
You can tell me your troubles, I'll listen for free. Regulars, trust me, it seems you can come and see Uncle to get through the week. Leave your pledges with me to redeem. Some folks sell their bodies for ten bob a go. Politicians go pawning their souls, which doesn't make me look too bad, don't you know? Me with my heart full of holes. All my yesterdays broken. I watch with no face. All battered and old. Bits of the movement all over the place. And a heart full of holes. A heart full of Knuckles and banjos are out on the town. At the knees up in Teddy Boy's room. The cold blocking tackle tells the time upside down. Rock and roll, well I don't know. Dead people's wedding gifts walk out the door. The clarinet squeals to be free. Accordions hop from the shelves to the floor. Start playing their polkas to me. Mm-hmm. 
pledge, dear, I'll keep it for you. It's not gonna go anywhere. But your soul, your soul, that is not what I do. It's not all that I can do. There. I remember the officers watching my hand, repair it or die. I was told it's a wonder to me. I still don't understand why I ever survived to be old with a heart full. Oh, oh, oh. 